This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Bunch of virus and COVID headlines. We have British officials considering plans to open up international travelers for passengers who haven't or who have been fully vaccinated. You've got the World Health Organization sounding the alarm over Africa specifically. And then the prevalence of COVID-19 in England increasing exponentially. That's according to a React One study. Lots of things going on. We also continue to focus on the inequities that have been laid bare once again because of COVID. Dr. Lisa Cooper is Distinguished Professor, Founder and Director of the University University's Center for Health Equity. We're talking about at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropy. She focuses on epidemiology, equity in healthcare and health uh, specifically. She's got a new book coming out at the end of the month. It asks a very important question. It's entitled, Why Are Health Disparities Everyone's Problem? She joins us on the phone in Clarksville, Maryland. Dr. Cooper, nice to have you here on Bloomberg. How are you? I'm doing fine. Nice to be with you, too. Well, it's nice to have you here. The inequities, the uh, differences in terms of access to health care or just health in America, it's a subject we've talked about a lot here uh, at Bloomberg over the past uh, year and a half or so because of the pandemic. Tell us what we've learned, what we can do better. Well, I think we've learned, you know, many of us that have been studying this problem have known that it existed for centuries and that this current um pandemic has just shined a magnifying lens on it. Um, So we know that, you know, that there are these inequities that people um, of different racial and ethnic backgrounds and people with uh, different levels of income experience and health based on exposures to negative factors, you know, things like poor quality housing or poor environmental conditions, not having access to healthy food, um, not getting um, the best uh, education because uh, the schools that they attend are not uh, well resourced and supported and be- therefore not having um, opportunities to have gainful employment. You know, so many things that then impact their ability to actually engage in healthy behaviors or even to obtain health care. And a lot of these things shaped by, you know, structural um, policies, things like um, that have affected people of different racial and ethnic groups for centuries. So we've known that and we've just seen it magnified by the fact that, you know, uh, people from these groups have been disproportionately infected and have died at much higher rates, um, two to three times higher in many cases than than whites. We- so I think that's what we've learned. Um, you know, obviously, we know some things that work, right. um, but um, I'll let you ask me more. <laughs> well, well, I like the title of your book, Why Are Health Disparities Everyone's Problem? It speaks to something we've talked about here as well when it comes to the global pandemic. It's everyone's problem. If we don't eradicate COVID in the developing world, then it doesn't leave the world and it's still in our system and it continues to have the impact to even hit developed world where there are lots of vaccines that have been given out, right? And things are better. So why is it that health disparities, as you write in your book, why are they everyone's problems? Remind us. Right. Well, you know, they're everyone's problem because as we've seen from the COVID-19 pandemic, everyone's health is interconnected. Um, So, you know, when we, we have people who are experiencing poor health in our country, 
we have higher costs um, to, to our healthcare system. We have less productivity um, in our our you know organizations and in our economy. Um, you know, it causes uh, less social solidarity, more political conflict, um, and then people we just lose lives. I mean, people die. Um, unnecessarily at young ages and are not as productive or healthy. And that's just not healthy for anyone. I mean, and none Mm -hmm. of us wants to see these harmful things going on. We watch things like violence going on in neighborhoods, and we we fear for our own well-being because people in other neighborhoods are experiencing poor conditions that are leading to these poor um, outcomes. So something like the Affordable Care Act, you know, passed, of course, during uh, the Obama administration. Today, the Supreme Court ruling upholding the Affordable Care Act. What does that mean for health equity? I think that's incredibly important. As we know, you know, access to, to health care is an important part of health equity. It's not the only thing, but it's definitely important. And so, you know, if people can get access to health care when they need it, and they can prevent themselves from getting ill, so they can go in for vaccines, they can go in for a test that will pick up uh, diseases early so that they can be treated ahead of time, uh, especially we know this is important for children and young people. Uh, we know that that will uh, improve health. So mm. I think that is a key piece, and I'm, I think that's a real win for health equity. And the more we can expand access across the country, uh, the better it will be. Just got about 30 seconds left here. What role can each of us play in advancing health equity? Well, you know, I think individually we each are responsible for, you know, taking care of our own health. So to the best extent that we can do that is to be empowered and informed. You know, I think what we can do is advocate within the organizations we work uh, in and the, the, the organizations we attend, like schools, to make sure that everyone has access to the best resources. We can be engaged politically and also um, support uh, policies that are equitable so that people have what they need. Mm -hmm. Listen, it's an important subject, and I know we'll continue to talk uh, about it, and hopefully we can have you back to talk even more. Good luck with the book, Why Are Health Disparities Everyone's Problem? It is out June 29th. It is by Dr. Lisa Cooper, Distinguished Professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Founder and Director of the University Center for Health Equity, of course. The school supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, Founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. This is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. What we have to make sure we do as the economy recovers is look at the data kind of broken down a bit. These plants are becoming more and more expensive. You're looking at $15 billion for their entry level. There have been waves of immigration that have faced a lot of resistance. There's a lot of color behind the scenes and a great untold story. How did Bezos really come out on top? As the cover says, Jeff wins. He always seems to win. The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio. So the Bloomberg Big Take on this Thursday, it's a Business Week story. It's about how criminals are liking the commodities boom as much as investors. So let's get to it. Uh, It's a team effort, including Bloomberg News agricultural reporter Marcy Nicholson, who joins us on the phone in Calgary, Canada. Marcy, uh, nice to have you here. Tell us uh, about what's going on here. Great. Well, the combination of the pandemic, soaring prices and everything from grains to metals to building materials, combined with a disrupted supply chain, such as a sea container shortage and companies having to use new suppliers that they don't have a history with, has caused a spike in criminal activity around the world. 
It's not a surprise, right? Where there's money to be made, <laughs> it's going to attract attention. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, the pandemic has made it more difficult um, to crack down on criminal activity. Police resources have been diverted elsewhere, making it easier for um, all sorts of commodity thefts all over the world. Food safety inspectors are unable to visit factories in places like India. And um, online marketplaces make it easy for thieves to sell their illegal goods. So when it comes to, and I know your specialty, and as I mentioned, it was a team effort because when you look at the commodity space, it's a big space and not all commodities are the same, but you cover lumber specifically. What's going on? Right. Well, lumber prices and the price of various wood products that are used to make homes um, have tripled or even quadrupled within the last year. Most of these uh, prices hit record highs in May and have just started to come down. Um, Of course, now the question is, will they continue to go down or will they go back up again? But um, it's caused not only um, a huge increase in the cost to build a house, but it's caused a supply shortage. And it has also caused um, a great opportunity for criminals because I think many of us have walked by houses being built. Um, They're not guarded places. They tend to have these kind of temporary fences up that are really just to keep people out so they don't hurt themselves. Construction workers typically leave very valuable equipment out and loads of lumber out because it's too heavy for most people to take, and it's there when they return for work in the morning. But it turns out it's really easy pickings for criminals who have trucks. And here in Western Canada, we even have reports of uh, some criminals uh, hot-wiring these uh, zoom booms, which is kind of like a type of forklift that's left on the construction site. So not only are people having their lumber stolen, but it's being stolen with their equipment. It's, you know, fascinating. And in this reporting that you and the team do, this isn't a new idea, right? Commodities being stolen. But as you mentioned earlier, when you've got prices take off like they did, even though lumber and some other commodities have settled down a little bit. uh, And as you said, the virus and the pandemic, you just don't have maybe as many uh, law enforcement out there. It's just been a really fertile ground. Exactly. Yeah. Nothing new with commodities being stolen. um, But what is new is the rate that it's happening now because of this combination of things that's really created the perfect storm uh, for the thieves. We even uh, we know about this uh, Swiss commodities trading firm called Mercuria Energy Group. They ended up having to work with a supplier that they hadn't used before in Turkey, and they paid $36 million for copper. And what they got was a load of painted paving stones. Oh, my God. So not exactly that. Well, and in this story, it talks to you about food fraud that's going on as you're getting adulterated food or food that's been cut with something else um, that's going on. It's a fascinating read and is just another angle of this commodity boom that, that we have seen. Marcy, thank you so much. Marcy Nicholson, she's agricultural reporter at Bloomberg News. On the phone from Calgary, Canada, as we mentioned, it's the Bloomberg Big Take, and it is a Business Week story as well. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. This story in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week that is out now and online and on the Bloomberg, uh, it's about the Bitcoinification of El Salvador. It's been underway for a while now, as the reporting goes, and to see exactly what's going on, 
We're going to take you to a surf town in that country that went full-on crypto with the help of an anonymous donor. For more on this tale, let's bring in Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. He's on the access line in Brooklyn, along with Bloomberg News Latin American corporate finance reporter Ezra Pfizer on the phone from Bogota, Colombia. Joel, uh, a fascinating story. And I feel like ever since the headline and the story came out about El Salvador kind of going all in on uh, Bitcoin, we've all been like, how did this happen? Yeah, that's right. And we, um, uh, for the record, had put this story in motion before we knew any of that. Um, so we, we looked like geniuses when it all happened. Um, and then we were like, Ezra, can you get that story done a little faster? Um, and But the story is really an interesting one because of all the places in the world um, that people have thought that um, might be a, a, a decent experiment um, for, for Bitcoin, Latin America seems to always come up. And uh, just the history of, of currencies there. Um, and uh, lo and behold, uh, there's a very interesting little mystery that Ezra told us about. And we said, why don't you go find out about it? So Ezra, how did, how did you first hear about what's happening in this little surf town? It was actually through, uh, you know, uh, some friends here, one of whom is, uh, is Salvadoran, who said, you know, there's this crazy experiment in this uh, off the beaten path surf town in El Salvador. It's not even one of the, there's a string of surf villages in, on the coast there, and it's not even one of the most most visited ones. It's kind of, um, you know, uh, a hidden gem, if you will. Um, and uh, I was lucky enough to go check it out about a month before El Salvador made the announcement that they were going to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Well, and it's it's fascinating because there's there's individuals who played obviously a very key role in all of this happen happening. It's uh, characters. Tell us about some of those individuals. In, in particular, uh, there's a gentleman who actually linked up with the anonymous donor. We're talking about a Michael Peterson. Yeah, so Michael uh, visited first um, El Sonte is the name of the town about 17 years ago on a, actually on a surfing trip and just fell in love with the place. He's got a colorful background. He uh, ran a very successful food concession business in California state fairs where he, he made a name for himself selling uh, chocolate-covered bacon strips some, some years ago. And in his, in, in his off-season, he would come down with his family into El Salvador and really fell in love with the town, started doing some community work, started working through um, the church he belonged to and making connections that way. And one of those connections that he actually made said to him, um, this was back in 2019, you know, there's a donor who's giving us a Bitcoin and we don't know what to do with it. And do you want to talk to this guy? So he goes to this meeting in mid-2019 and uh, expecting to meet this anonymous donor. And uh, he, he sits across the street, for, uh, across the table rather from the advisor uh, to the donor uh, who says, you know, we want you to come up with a proposal to use Bitcoin, and we don't want you to cash it out to use on community projects. We want you to create a, a local economy that really runs on Bitcoin. So his first his first reaction was, this might be a scam. And then he told his wife, you know what, it's it's too ridiculous to, <laughs> to actually be a scam, so I'm going to mm. go for it and, and create, a, create a plan to really um, develop a Bitcoin economy in this little town of about 3,000 people. How good is the surf there? <laughs> <laughs> the surf is not, you know, that that area of, uh, of El Salvador just held some um, qualifiers for the Olympic Games, and it's not the surf town. The, the two neighboring towns are are world class, but uh, I'm not a surfer. But the way it was described to me was, you know, it's it's a fun surf village. So 
it's, it's good enough so, to attract uh, foreigners. Hence the name uh, and headline for the story, Bitcoin Beach. Um, so Ezra, how has this experiment played out in, in the town? Because of all the things Bitcoin might be good for, it's not thought to be good for day-to-day transactions. Yeah, that's right. I mean, initially, they uh, it was slow going. They, 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 they'll, they'll save some of themselves. They started to try to train... Um, Kind of the uh, adults, the older adults in the in the town uh, about Bitcoin, and it was just kind of lost on them, as Bitcoin is on a lot of us. Um, and so then they started working with with younger kids that were kind of more susceptible or more 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 uh, adaptable to technology. They really benefited though when the pandemic hit because they saw an opportunity not just to help people, but to also further their project by starting to give some cash transfers to about uh, 500 of the families there. They were giving um, amounts of, of around $35 worth of Bitcoin, just feeding the community with these with these transfers. That then created demand, and the businesses started to come to them and say, what are we? <laughs> people are asking how they can spend, spend Bitcoin. How do we accept it? So that put in motion a plan in which they started to develop their own um, Bitcoin Beach wallet, and it actually works, to your point, Joel, it works on the Lightning Network, which makes small transactions possible rather than actually on-chain transactions. And um, it really accelerated the pace um, of what they were seeing, and they saw the kind of adoption start to grow even outside of the town, up and down the coast. And so now they estimate of the, of the families there, about 90% of families interact with Bitcoin in one way or another on a regular basis. So, still so uh, of their three for their three year plan, they're probably they're a year and a half into it. And okay, they're probably where they thought they would be after three years. That's what I was going to ask you, uh, Ezra. Is it's still too early to say this is working? This makes sense. I mean, Peterson's moving ahead with expanding it right around the country. Well, during this pro- this process, as they they were starting to grow the project in El Sante. It did catch the eye of um, the president in San Salvador. The president of San Salvador is 39 years old. He's kind of a disruptor himself. He's a millennial president, and he was watching closely what was what was transpi- transpiring out in El Sante. And it really served as the inspiration for him to make the decision. We, we've been told that he's held Bitcoin himself for several years now. And back when he was mayor in, of San Salvador in 2017, he even tweeted at about using Bitcoin. But we know now that he was watching um, the project closely and it served as the inspiration for the decision that he made to adopt it as legal currency. So now, uh, Peterson really sees his role as, you know, we can replicate these, this Bitcoin Beach project in little communities around the, around the country, acting almost as community banks, that his, his, his philosophy is really let the community um, take charge of how this is how this is developed, right. and which programs are, are are funded, and how it works. So right. he really sees it uh, as being a well, project that you can replicate around the country. Well, I know residents of El Zante too have also seen the volatility of Bitcoin, so have gotten uh, some harsh lessons. Uh, Ezra Pfizer, thank you so much. Latin America corporate finance reporter at Bloomberg, Joel Weber, thank you so much. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Some news today on the crypto world. U.S. regulators once again punting their decision on whether to approve a Bitcoin ETF. We had the SEC saying yesterday 
uh, in a regulatory filing. It's going to seek more public comment on a proposal to list a product on the CBOE global markets. Not the first time uh, this year that we've seen the SEC specifically delaying giving an answer to those who would like to find a way to trade the largest cryptocurrency in an ETF format. So someone who knows a lot about it and who has been the face really of institutional crypto adoption, Michael Saylor back with us, Chairman, CEO and founder of MicroStrategy on the phone in Maryland. And right beside me, Mike McGlone, our own Mike McGlone. He covers Bitcoin for us here at Bloomberg Intelligence. You know it, you've heard him a lot on our air. He is Bloomberg Intelligence Commodity Strategist, and as I said, in studio. Michael, first of all, welcome back. How are you? Thanks for having me. Always happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And from what I understand, you actually caught up with Mike McGlone uh, a little bit last night. Tell us about this Bitcoin Mining Council meeting. What was that about? Well, I mean, the Bitcoin miners are are a really important component of Bitcoin. And and, uh, we put together a Bitcoin Mining Council, so we created a voluntary open forum for any Bitcoin miner in the world to come together to share best practices and to educate the world on uh, the benefits of Bitcoin. As you can imagine, a lot of excitement. People want to mine Bitcoin from volcanoes. They want to mine Bitcoin from waterfalls. <laughs> and when those questions pop up, we wanted to have the answers as to how to do it. Well, Michael, this is one of the key takeaways I have got from the Mining Council meeting last night and from Bitcoin 2021 and meeting a lot of the Bitcoin miners was how Bitcoin is just so positive for the grid, the intermittent source and renewables. And it seems like that narrative is not out there. And how I met a miner who actually was only a miner because he was a power supplier. And he said, I only got to Bitcoin because I needed to help manage my excess power. So what what do you think is important for us to do to make sure the narrative is gets out there, the facts of actually mining have many benefits to the grid. You know, I think this is like the the year when they invented electricity and every company and every government on earth needs to figure out what does electricity mean to my country? And I figure it'll take a decade of education. I mean, the facts are right now, if you buy uh, the modern Bitcoin miner, uh, you can generate about 35 to 40 cents a kilowatt hour off of any intermittent energy source or stranded energy source, I mean, no matter where it is on Earth. And that's four times better than, than uh, you know, the developed world high-end commercial energy rate. So uh, as people figure that out, I think anybody that's got uh, a volcano or a, a waterfall or a wind farm away from a big city is thinking, this is the solution to my energy problem. It's, and the key fact I find very positive forward looking is the ability to kind of solve the problem of gas flaring. I, the quote I heard up in Canada, there might be 10,000 wells that are just leaking methane gas or methane, as they say in London. And this is a, a way to help solve that. And I, it seems to me, well, that's a lot of stranded resources that can be put to use. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people that understand Bitcoin, they realize that Bitcoin is recycling wasted energy. It's rescuing stranded energy and it's avoiding capital destruction. I actually have a friend that owns a bunch of natural gas fields. And and if you've got a situation where you can't uh, immediately monetize that natural gas, it's an awful, awful choice you have to make, a Hobson's choice. You're either flaring it, which is awful for the environment, or you shut the well in, and it's destruction of the capital. It's it's horrifically bad. And Bitcoin, what do you need to solve it? You need to be able to monetize that energy uh, wherever it is, and you need to do it with like low bandwidth at any scale. And Bitcoin mining is 
Bitcoin mining is probably 20 times more energy efficient than a Google data center or a Netflix data center for monetizing energy. So it's a gift just sitting out there for people that have a problem with regard to stranded energy or intermittent energy where they... Well- they just waste it, and they don't know what to do about why it. Is the, the why is the narrative so different, though, then? And maybe I'm just a little naive and a little stupid when it comes to this, but why is the narrative so differently when it comes to the impact of uh, mining crypto on the environment? You're saying why is there sometimes a negative environmental narrative around crypto? Correct. Well, I think it's because it's the first year in the decade when Bitcoin is emerging as an issue. It's the most disruptive technology in the world for money, and it's the most disruptive technology in the world for energy. And if you imagine uh, the first year we invented electricity, and if you went and put a microphone in front of every mayor, every governor, every politician, every senator, every CEO, and every journalist and said, what do you think about this? And you gave them uh, like five minutes to respond and they could do an hour of research, you would get a wide variety of answers. You know, what I say about Bitcoin is it takes you 10 hours to scratch the surface, 100 hours to have an informed opinion, 1,000 hours to have an intelligent opinion, and 10,000 hours to understand it. And everybody, when you ask the CEO of General Motors, okay, what do you think about Bitcoin? And they've studied it for an hour. Or you ask the governor or the mayor or, or whomever it is or a journalist, everybody has to have an opinion because they're being forced. It's in their face. Right. Like I watch well, these poor CEOs go on television and they ask them all, are you, what do you think about Bitcoin? What do you think about Bitcoin? Bitcoin, 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 Bitcoin. And they have to answer. But the truth is they don't have a thousand hours to figure out what the answer is. So the knee-jerk reaction is either, A, it seems so good, it's too good to be true. Or the other answer is, all I know is it uses well, a lot of energy. Well, and it also says to me that we're still learning a lot about it. And one crypto isn't the same as another crypto. So it's why we're going to continue the conversation because we've still got a lot of questions. We're going to come back to Michael Saylor, of course, the chairman, CEO and founder of MicroStrategy. Also with us is Mike McGlone. He's Bloomberg Intelligence Commodity Strategist with us in, in, in the studio. The We've just got 25 seconds here, Michael. I mean, the environmental argument, is there some weight to each side? Oh, yes. Well, it, it's the key thing. It's, it's called le- readership and putting negative things about, you know, environmental disasters, as Elizabeth Warren says, is gets hits. But the fact is, Bitcoin mining has a lot of positive grid governing factors and it. it works great with the intermediate. It's really kicking in renewables. It's actually accelerating the adoption of renewables. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, I want to get right back to it. We're talking about Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies. Michael Saylor is still with us, Chairman and CEO of MicroStrategy from Maryland. Mike McLone, Commodity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence right here in our interactive broker stu- uh, studio. Hey, uh, Michael, talk to me about the plan to sell as much as a billion dollars in shares. You also did uh, close a sale of junk bonds. Is it all about buying Bitcoin? Is that what the proceeds are for? You know, it's a standing program that's good over the course of of several years, and it gives us the option, if the market conditions are correct, to sell equity uh, from time to time. We have a standing share buyback program, too, that gives us the option to buy the shares back. Mm -hmm. So generally, our policy is do accretive financing. If we see an opportunity to sell debt or equity that's accretive to the rest of the security holders, we would do that. So that's a yes? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, you know, I can't really say when it gets to that specific question. All right, I'm just going to make a general assumption. All right, Mike McClone, you take it. Well, um, Michael, I, I want to ask you a key thing about how do you think history is going to look at you? Because I view you as a good example of, the, of a bastion of free market capitalism adopting this new digitalized uh, internet money or digital uh, currency versus China. It's cracking down, and China's mm-hmm. that repressive um, society that doesn't even allow Winnie the Pooh. I mean, where do you think this is going to end? Because I have a sense you, you're making a place in history here. Well, I think that Bitcoin is uh, it's America. It's the American dream in cyberspace. People came to America for property and for freedom hundreds of years ago because they couldn't get those in Europe. And I think there's a general sentiment around the world of frustration that people are frustrated with regard to their property rights and their freedoms. And and uh, Bitcoin is the highest form of property, right? And if you don't have property in the third world, the developing nation, then Bitcoin's your only hope. And if you have property in the first world and in U.S. and Europe and you're watching it get debased as the currency weakens, then Bitcoin you know, is your way uh, to get some control over your property rights. And so... I think we're the first public company that took a serious position. Uh, It's a paradigm shift. And I think everybody else is gradually coming to realize that it's a pretty good idea. It'll take a decade, I think, before the entire world comes to accommodation to understand what this really means for civilization. Well, it sounds like uh, El Salvador and Mr. Bukele um, seems to agree with you. We just did a big story about it in Business Week magazine about what's going on there. Look, I think the big theme here is there's 1.7 billion people without a bank. If you have a no bank, mm-hmm. that means you work your entire life and you store your money in your local currency. If that's, the, if that's the El Salvadoran currency and it's a civil war, that means you lose your life savings overnight, like in Lebanon, like in Zimbabwe, like in Venezuela. So you take away the bank, you take away the currency, you take away hope and, and a decent life from billions and billions of people that idea is spreading and it's it's a pretty powerful idea that what what if you could give eight billion people property rights on a mobile phone and the bank couldn't seize your assets like in lebanon they literally seized everybody's assets devalued them by 90 percent froze all their u.s dollar values forever and now they're de- debating whether they'll give you but, any of your money back ever. I but, mean, that's the status quo this weekend. But Michael, I feel like with the I was just talking to Michael Chertoff for something we're going to do here at Bloomberg and talking about cybersecurity. The colonial pipeline and the ability for the U.S. government to claw back crypto showed us that. Wait a minute, we thought you couldn't you couldn't do that. That you couldn't figure out where it was coming from. That was a game changer. Yeah, those, those criminals were inept. They just stored their public keys on a server and they were traced and the, and the government got it back. I think that um, the most important thing to know there is is that, you know, people use cars and to rob banks because cars are good, but, you know, cars aren't that bad for society. And we use telephones and criminals use telephones. And, mm. and if it's a good technology, people are going to use electricity and telephones and phones. I don't get caught up in that because it's really just the the man eats uh, man bites dog story. The bigger yeah. story here is 
property rights via electricity or electric money for the first time in the history of the human race. Yeah. It's as profound as electricity. Didn't Thomas Edison say something like that or about that? So, Michael, the key question I have is, I've so, been so impressed with your confidence since last summer. What are the key things you might uh, admit publicly that you're worried about that might go wrong in this space? I just got about 30 seconds. I just think generally it's just the volatility. The Chinese are cracking down on Bitcoin. That's a tragedy for China. It's going to be a hundred billion dollar windfall in America. But the immediate reaction is is it's putting pressure on Bitcoin markets. So people think maybe it's a bad thing, even though it's a good thing. So a lot of things happen that people misinterpret. That's the number one issue. Make mm. sure they understand what's really happening. Hey, the SEC delayed ruling on a Bitcoin ETF. So another delay. Uh, any forecast of when we might get this done? Or do you think it might not get done ever? Again, just got about 25 seconds here. I think they're being deliberate and thoughtful. And I think mm. it'll get done sometime in the next year. But I can't say when. Are they talking to you about it? Uh, we don't consult with them on those sort of things. <laughs> Okay. They're quite confident to do it themselves, I'm sure. <laughs> always fun. Always appreciate it. Michael Saylor, be well. Michael Saylor, Chairman, CEO, and Founder of MicroStrategy. And our thanks always to our Mike McGlone, who keeps us up to speed, up to date, and smart when it comes to all things crypto. He's Bloomberg Intelligence Commodity Strategist in our studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.